Friends, welcome. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Gordon, and we are working through the Gospel of John together. And so this week we're looking at John chapter 14, verses 15, all the way to 31. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to open it. We'll be looking at John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31, all the way to the end of the chapter. And the main idea of today's message is this. Loving God is the beginning of true obedience. Loving God is the beginning of true obedience. I want to make three introductory observations as we set up this text, because I think it will help us as we understand what we're looking at here. The first of these is the gifts of God are for the people of God. The gifts of God are for the people of God. So look with me at verse 16 through 17. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So just to remind yourself that the world, this, this expression in John, refers to anything and anyone not in faithful submission to Jesus Christ. So the world, when we're speaking about it in the book of John, is anyone or anything that is not in faithful submission to Jesus. That includes cultures, systems, beliefs, individuals, who, whether they do it openly or whether they do it in a hidden way, resist God, and the chief way that they do that is by encouraging us to seek pleasure apart from God. The chief way that the world rejects and resists God is by encouraging us to seek pleasure apart from God. And this is in part because the world, as we are all too familiar with, at least in our own context now, is fundamentally materialistic, meaning the world is skeptical about what it cannot see or what can't be observed by its tools. But beneath and underneath that skepticism, and even because of that skepticism, lurks a still more profound reason. The world fundamentally looks down on and despises Christ. We can see that in 1 Corinthians 2.14. I'll have it up here. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him. Why? He is not able to understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. The underlying reason why the world, or indeed anyone, does not see and does not receive God's Spirit is because they do not love God or because they do not find Christ pleasing. Christ is not pleasing to them, and it's essential that we remember that. They do not, we could say, prefer Christ. We could say they do not enjoy Christ. As a consequence, they're skeptical 
of anything that they don't see, and they can't see the Spirit, and they don't want the Spirit. So first, the gifts of God are for the people of God. Secondly, the people of God are those who love God. The people of God are those who love God. Jesus says four times in this passage that God's promises are specifically for those who love him. You can see them in verses 15, 16, 21, and 23. So 15 and 16, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So that's the promise, right? If you love me, what's the promise? I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper. And then verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me, here's the promise, will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. I'll reveal myself to him. And then in verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And the promise, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So, the gifts of God are for the people of God, and the people of God are those who love God. And thirdly, we need to see that God's love encompasses his people. God's love encompasses his people. God's love both precedes, it goes before, and it also answers, it comes after, our own. So it's before us and behind us. Any love that we have for God, we know from God's word, is ultimately a result of his love at work in our heart. Our love for God is a response to God's love for us. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John will say later in his letter, 1 John 4.19 to the church, he says, We love because he first loved us. So this love of God for his church does not end. It comes before the church even existed. It encounters the church and creates the church, and it persists with the church, and it will persist to the end. God is not content to love his people from a distance. Instead, God, as it were, surrounds his people with his love. Look at verses 21 through 23. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then look down to verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So clearly, this love goes far beyond the love that God has for the world. Do you see a distinction? This is no ordinary love. This is a personal love. This is an intimate love. This is an affectionate love. This is a love that God only has for those who love Jesus. This is a different kind of love than the love that's spoken of in John 3.16. This is a greater love. 
So, if we want to enter into and know and enjoy this kind of love, this greater love, we need to answer three questions. And that's how we're going to spend the balance of our time. These three questions flow like this. First, if the gifts of God's spirit and love are only for those who love Jesus, then the question, what does it mean to love Jesus, right? If the gifts of God and the spirit of God are for those who love God, then what does it mean to love Jesus? That's an incredibly important question. And secondly, if those who love Jesus keep his word, then what does it mean to keep his word? If the only people who encounter are his love are those who love him, then I need to know what it means to love him. And if those who love him always keep his word, then I need to know what it means to keep his word. And our third question will be, how may I know or how may I be sure of his abiding, indwelling, and sanctifying love? In essence, we admit that even when we know what it is to love God, and even when we know what it is to keep his word, that fundamentally as human beings, we are leaky vessels, and we readily lose any immediate sense of God's love. So we have to ask ourselves, how can I be sure, even when I don't feel sure, that God is in fact loving me, and that I am indeed in his love? So first question, and I'll title it with the answer. So our first major idea is, to love Jesus means to prefer, enjoy, treasure him. To love Jesus means to prefer, to enjoy, to treasure him. We're going to break this into smaller bits. First, loving God is the spiritual root of true obedience. Just as Jesus told us four times that it's those who love him who are the people of God, Jesus also tells us four times that this kind of love results in keeping Jesus' commandments and his word. In other words, this love for Jesus gives rise to obedience. In verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In verse 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In verse 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And in verse 24, he says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So while to love God is certainly a kind of obedience, you know, if there's any children out there like going, yeah, but I thought the greatest commandment was love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes, to love God is a kind of obedience. But here, Jesus is showing us the connection between the posture or the activity or the affections of our heart and the resulting character of our life. That right living comes from right loving. If you, for instance, never obey Christ, you cannot say that you love Christ. But if you love Christ, while you may not always or only obey Christ, yet you will truly obey him. Do you see how he's created this condition? 
If you never obey me, you can't say that you love me. But if you love me, you will ultimately, eventually, increasingly obey me. So what is this love for Jesus that prompts us to accept and obey him? What does it feel like? I found one theologian who put it this way. Jesus has no defects. He has no demerit. Therefore, we cannot and we dare not love him graciously the way God loves us. We dare not love him with a love that overcomes some fault or ugliness or sin in Jesus so as to treat him well. No, love for Jesus is entirely deserved. He is infinitely worthy of being loved. He is perfectly lovely. He is loved not in spite of what he is, but because of what he is. Our love for Jesus is a response to his beauty, his greatness, and his glory. And that means that, the, that to love Jesus is pleasurable. That means that we desire him because he is infinitely desirable. We treasure him because he is infinitely worthy. It is the reflex of the newly awakened, newly born human soul to all that is true and good and beautiful embodied in Jesus. So loving, Jesus, loving God is the spiritual root of true obedience and our love for Jesus is a response to his beauty, greatness, and glory. Therefore, too, to love Christ is to be pleased with Christ. It is to prefer Christ. It is to enjoy Christ. So let's test this idea. Whenever you come up with a clever idea in your reading in the Bible, you've got to test it. Clever ideas are great, but you need to look and see if it holds merit. First, how is the word love used in the Gospel of John? Is it used like this? I think it is. For example, John 3.19 says, people loved the darkness rather than the light. What does that mean? That means that's what they wanted. They preferred darkness over light. They, they wanted this, not that. They desired it. They preferred it. They enjoyed darkness. They didn't love darkness as a duty. They didn't sit there and go like, I know I must. I don't really want to, but I, I suppose that I, that I shall go and be in darkness. No, they, they wanted it. They loved it. They craved it. That's where they wanted to be. Again, in John 12, verse 43, John says, the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus because, quote, they loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. They preferred the glory that comes from man. They enjoyed the glory that came from man. Secondly, so we can see it is used this way in the Gospel of John. This is how the word love is used. Secondly, we can see God's love for, for Christ is described this way. This is how God speaks of how he loves his son. And we have to go to Matthew 3.17 and Luke 3.22 to see this. So Matthew 3.17, he says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God doesn't say, I suppose I should love my son. After all, he is mine. Right? He says, 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus gives God the Father infinite pleasure. Luke 3.22, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is the only way to love the son of God. This is the only way to love the Son of God, to be pleased with him, to feel pleasure in him, to prefer him above all else, to admire him, to praise him, to enjoy him, to stand in trembling, happy awe of him, to choose Christ over other lesser pleasures, and in those pleasures to find and enjoy him that we let our mind race up through the sunbeam to see the sun, as Lewis would say. It is essential that we understand this, that true, joyful obedience properly flows, not from duty, but from delight. Loving Jesus, dear brother and sister, Loving Jesus, dear friend, loving Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, is not so much a matter of doing excellent things. It's a matter of delighting in an excellent Savior. We are gathered here today not because we have determined so much in our heart that we want to do more excellent things. We have gathered together as a group because we love an excellent Savior. So secondly... To keep Jesus' word, then, means to receive and observe his word. So to love Jesus means to prefer Jesus, to enjoy Jesus. To keep Jesus' word means to receive and observe his word. There's two aspects to this. First, to keep Jesus' word means to receive and to observe his moral teachings. And that's the literal, on the face of it, sense of it, right? If you read John's gospel, though, looking specifically for commands that relate to moral behavior, you'll only find essentially one. Just think for a moment. Let your mind go through John's gospel, thinking of what does Christ command us to do that's moral behavior. Essentially, there's only one. In chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, he says... Love one another as I have loved you. Now that seems really dense. Like there's a lot that could be unpacked out of that. And so Paul offers an exposition of this new command in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, and here he names, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, etc., are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul saw Jesus' command here as a summary command, meaning it contained a lot of other information in it than what it just explicitly said. He interpreted this commandment in the light of Jesus' broader teaching. This seems a reasonable interpretation here as well. 
Because Jesus broadens the term my commandments in verse 15 to the term my words in verses 23 through 24. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So throughout John, Jesus refers to all his teaching as his words. So you can think of John chapter 6, verse 63, where he says, my words are spirit and life. So while Jesus certainly meant that to keep his word was to accept and observe certain moral behaviors. So that's absolutely true. Yet it doesn't appear to be the specific emphasis in John's gospel. In fact, John doesn't seem chiefly concerned with moral obedience. Not that it's not important. Instead, what is John concerned with? Well, two, to keep Jesus' word means also to receive and to abide in Christ, to treasure him and to treasure his word. See, John records many commands of Christ. There's lots of them. But the vast majority of them have more to do with receiving or abiding in Christ than with specific moral behaviors. Here's a few of them. For example, receive me in 112. Follow me, 143. Walk in the light, 1235. Believe in the light, 1236. Believe in God, 14.1. Believe in me, 14.11. Abide in me, 15.4. Ask whatever you wish, 15.7. Abide in my love, 15.9. And receive the Holy Spirit. There's lots of commands, and that's not even exhaustive. There's lots of commands in John, but most of them are that sort of a command. So again, it would appear that the key to moral obedience flows from a heartfelt delight in Christ. Your ability to love another person as Christ loved you flows from your acceptance of and your abiding in Christ. So perhaps more importantly, you could also say that the ground of our assurance as Christians does not consist primarily or even exclusively in moral obedience. While yes, you can look to your moral behavior as an indication that God is at work in you, that he is producing fruit in you, that's not your grounds for confidence. Not ultimately. Your grounds for confidence lies deeper in your delight for Christ. While we certainly will rejoice and we will praise God for every instance of obedience that we see as a result of his work in our lives, and while a Christian should expect to see real fruit of his faith, yet a Christian should not look to moral performance as his primary assurance that God loves him. Nor does he look to his own convictions for the strength to resist his longings for sin. Christianity is not just about becoming a stronger person so that we can resist more things. No, instead, he actively cultivates, he rests on, and he rejoices in the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Friend, you will only ever find the strength to resist the deceitful pleasures of sin and keep Jesus' word by trusting, abiding, resting and adoring Jesus Christ. So while I normally save applications for the end, we got to do a little one here. I titled this application sort of as, I'd rather have Christ. 
Remember, connect the idea of preferring Christ, that's what it means to love him, to obedience now. How are you going to stop looking at illicit images on your device? How are you going to cultivate a soft answer that turns away wrath? How are you going to reach your neighbor? How are you going to choose to sacrifice your free time for an ungrateful and lost soul? It is not ultimately, nor is it enduringly effective or pleasing to God merely to do these things because they are right. That can do for a while. That can even sometimes nurse us into a proper delight in Christ. But in and of itself, duty does not please God. Piper's infamous for this illustration, so I just have to quote him because I'm stealing from it. But it works so well for me. If I, for instance, got a bundle of flowers and I came home to my wife and she comes to the door and she opens the door and I hand them to her and I say, darling, it is my duty to love you. Receive these as a mark of my love. How cold do you think it will be in the doghouse that I'll be sleeping in? <laughs> she wouldn't. But what she wants what shows real love is if I come to the door and I say, darling, I love you so much. I just had to get you a small token of what you mean to me. Friend, true, joyful, lasting, satisfying obedience flows from your soul feasting on the excellencies of Jesus Christ. When you see how much greater Christ is than your immediate gratification, than your immediate pleasure, that is what will allow you to turn away from unnecessary purchases. That is what's going to allow you to set aside a gluttonous portion. That is what is going to stand between you and wrongful images. That is what is going to straighten out your twisted speech. The change in our life begins when we see Christ as holy and beautiful and say in our heart, I hear you. And your words are true and good. Help me to love you more fully so that I might live more abundantly. Which leads us to our third question. How am I supposed to do this? I don't know about you, but I don't spend most of my waking hours delighting in Jesus Christ. Not fully, not ultimately. How ready it is for me to just look at two things and say, well, I know Christ is good. But, oh, this is such an immense task. It's so far beyond our capacity. So thank God that he sets it right next to this doctrine. Now, friends, this third point is that God helps us. God helps us. He loves us, and he keeps us by giving us his spirit. Now, friends, it is fitting. It is simply fitting that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit would stand almost entirely in the background of God's love for his people. Why would that be? Because it is the Holy Spirit's very nature. He does not delight in prominence. 
He delights in tuning our hearts to see, sense, and savor the harmonies of Jesus' glory and goodness. The Holy Spirit doesn't want to be front and center. He wants to help you see Jesus. So verse 15 here looks back on verses 12 through 14, what we spent last week thinking about. That greater work of Christ and his church doing his works, keeping his words, that is one for which we concluded and which we know even now in and of ourselves we are not sufficient. We are no more able in and of ourselves to properly obey Christ than a lame man is to walk. But Jesus has sent help, his Holy Spirit. In verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. The Holy Spirit is God's indwelling presence. He is how God makes known to believers his love. It is how God assures believers of his power. It's how God assures us of his promises. It's how God readies us and keeps us for himself. And so while we could have sermons on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, let's just briefly Mention four of his wonderful works that are in keeping with this thought. First, the Spirit is our ever-present and infinitely strong deliverer. He is our helper. Look at verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. We can see by opposites, what we are without the Spirit. Look at verse 18, you'll, you'll, if you, you'll quickly see that we are orphans. He says, I will not leave you orphans. So what would we be without the Spirit? We would be orphans. Now just take a moment and think through what that meant in the ancient world. That would mean that we would be weak. That would mean that we would be helpless. That would mean that we would be unguided. No one would be providing for us. No one would be seeing to our well-being. We would be trampled by the structures of society. Christ says, I won't leave you an orphan. Instead, our only remedy is if Christ will rescue us, if Christ will adopt us into his household and then continually govern us and provide for us by his spirit, which is precisely what he does. This spirit, he says, is our ever-present helper. He strengthens our soul against the war weariness and the temptations of sin. He never abandons us, and he is never absent. Instead, he is constantly encouraging us. He even turns our sorrows into faithful songs. Psalm 46 kind of catches this idea. I'll just quote verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Do you want to know what help he offers you? Look at Psalm 46. He is like a fortress. That's a help. He is our defense. He is our help in time of need. He is strong. He is ever-present. He is infinitely powerful. That is our help. When we are bent under the load of sin, when we are crushed under the feeling of guilt, or if we have lost our way, he, the Spirit, directs our eyes, and he directs our ways to Christ, and he renews our soul's hope, thus delivering us out of despair. The Spirit is our ever-present, 
infinitely strong deliverer, our helper. Secondly, the Spirit opens our mind and our heart to the word and the work of Jesus. That he is the Spirit of truth means that he will, in verse 26, teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit is the greatest of all teachers. He is the one who opens your heart to receive and accept God's truth. It's he who first planted the seed of the gospel in your heart. He is the one that caused it to flame with love for God. He is the one who brings to mind out of that storeroom in your heart the treasure of God's word. Friends, just as an aside, this is why it is of immense profit to regularly practice memorizing God's word and planting it in your heart. Create there a rich treasury from which the Holy Spirit, by God's power and grace, will dredge up in that moment when you most desperately need it, a recollection of what God has said. It is he over time who aligns your conscience to the magnetic north of God's true law, giving you both holy freedom so you no longer feel bent under the regulations and rules that don't actually produce righteousness, but also a holy fear that will keep you away from those things that would destroy your soul. So this then is one great mark of a genuine work of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself. But rather, wherever there is a holy freedom from false piety, wherever there is a holy fear and attention paid to God's word, wherever there is a growing delight in and submission to Jesus Christ, that is evidence of the Spirit's work. So finally... The Spirit gives us peace and casts out unholy fear. Look at verse 27, possibly one of my favorite texts in Scripture. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's the word peace in Hebrew which is what Jesus probably would have been speaking at the time, or Aramaic, means wholeness, that all is right. And by this, Christ means that in and through the Spirit, we have confidence of real peace, real fellowship, real friendship with God. Not like those in the world. Because those in the world are ready at a moment's notice to turn to violence in order to gain their own advantage. And ultimately, those in the world can have no confidence of God's friendship. The Spirit does sometimes put our soul into a holy turmoil, a holy sorrow over sin, but his intent is to bring us to repentance and thus to real genuine peace. Knowing that the cares of the world are like weeds that choke our faith, the Spirit is at work to pull up these noxious seedlings of sin from the soil of our heart. And thus he pricks us so that he may mend us and in so doing preserve and keep us for eternal life. Friends, as 
insensible as the world is of God's spirit, love, and gifts, the church must be made sensible of the same. Remember, the world can't see him. The world doesn't know him. The world can't receive him. They are insensible of God's spirit, love, and gifts. His gifts are not for the world. His gifts are for those who love his son. As insensible as they are of the spirit, so the church must be made sensible. It is essential to our life and well-being and our obedience in the household of faith. The Holy Spirit is not only the cause of our new life, the Holy Spirit is our enduring consolation in Christ. We must nurture and depend on his pervasive peace. Listen and learn just three ways that you can recognize the Spirit giving us God's peace. Listen to them and learn them from verses 19 through 21. Jesus says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. That's what he told them, right? But you will see me. One, because I live, you also will live. So that's the first mark of the Spirit's presence. Secondly, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's the second mark. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And our third mark, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So the three marks right here are, one, the Spirit assures us that we are now truly alive and we will live again. That gives us peace to live and die well. If you know in your heart that by God's Holy Spirit, he has given you new life, not just new spiritual life, but new real life, then that means you are ready to die well for Jesus. Because you know the Spirit that lives in you, just as it raised Jesus from the dead, will raise you from the dead. The Spirit makes you ready to live and die well. Secondly, the Spirit assures us that God is truly with us and we are not alone. This gives us the peace to face bereavement. This gives us the peace to face real loneliness. This gives us the peace to face deep and difficult losses with a quiet, even joyful trust in our Heavenly Father because we know that even though in the moment it feels as though we are alone, we are not in fact alone. And thirdly, the Spirit assures us that God truly loves us. And in the face of that, or that even and especially when things are difficult, God is for us, not against us. Because the inclination and, the, and the, the logic that the world will use is you are experiencing difficulty. You might even die. Surely this would mean that God has abandoned you and he does not love you and you have no hope for the future. But the Spirit says, no, I'm with you. I have you. I will keep you. So what are some implications and applications that we can conclude with? More than anything, cultivate a love for God in your heart. More than anything. 
more than anything, cultivate a love for God in your heart. And more than anything, cultivate a love for God in the hearts of those that are around you. This is the essential virtue of the Christian life. Learn to practice teaching, preaching, singing to yourself and others the excellencies of Christ. It is perfectly okay to ask a Christian brother and sister to go out for coffee so that you can talk about how amazing Jesus is. That is a perfectly good, perfectly acceptable topic of conversation. It is perfectly normal and welcome to invite someone into your home and to say at the dinner table, I want to speak of the excellencies of Christ. Tell me, brother, how has Christ lifted up your heart this week? Cultivate a love for God in your heart. How would you cultivate a love for a friend or cultivate a love for a spouse? Would it not be to call up to your mind all those things that are most precious and most lovely of them in your mind? Would you not say, oh, I love their eyes, I love their hair, I love their, their touch, I love their tone, I love the way that they do this, I love the way that they do that. And as you speak of the excellencies of that person, your heart is inflamed with love for them. You choose to prefer them over other loves. Do the same with God. Secondly, receive and respond to God's word. Your first step to obedience is to acknowledge that what God says is good and then that it is true. Some of us will come the other way at it, and the first step will be to say it is true, and then to conclude that it is good, but these two things are the foundation of new obedience in Christ, that what he says is true, and what he says is good. Then ask him to help you. You can ask him to help you with those two conclusions along the way. Ask him to help you by his spirit through his church to grant you strength to live by his grace through faith. So identify then one clear action in one specific circumstance that would better please Christ and ask him for another occasion for new and better obedience. Say, Christ, it is clear to me that this would choose you and please you and be in in line with your word, give me an opportunity to display this. I want to serve you. Thirdly, ask him to help you. Namely, pray. Trust him to help you. Believe and rejoice in whatever he gives you. There was a time when I was in Ure when there was a terrific accident that occurred to some uh, mountain climbers. Uh, and several of them died. Suddenly, and it was a big shock to the community. I had a friend who was a part of the community, and she called me up and she said, Gordon, you gotta come, you gotta come right now, you gotta talk to these people. Now, this community is a deeply pagan community. It's, it's profoundly opposed to Christianity, for the most part. And I was frightened. I had no idea what I was going to say. What am I going to do? Walk into a room with a bunch of people that just lost their dear friend in a sudden catastrophic accident. And I, hi, I'm a representative of that perspective that you completely don't like, and um, I'd love to comfort you. Ow! It was frightening to me. And I remember getting more and more nervous, and of course she could see it, and we're walking right to the door of this room, and I know that on the other side of that door is where all these people are, and she just grabbed my hand and she said, Pastor Gordon, trust God. 
The Spirit is in you, is he not? I said, yes. The Spirit will give you the words that you need. Trust him. Sometimes we just need that sort of friendship in our life. Someone to just grab us by the hand, remind us of our doctrine. Do you have the Holy Spirit or not? Yeah, yes, I, yes, I do. You know, good, all right. He's going to help you. Uh, yeah, yes, he will. Okay, now go. <laughs> Friends, when you do not know how to do what God has called you to do, which is exactly where the disciples were here, trust the Holy Spirit. He is the one who will give you the courage to face cancer, unlike the world. He was the one who's going to give you courage to grieve, unlike the world. He is the one who's going to allow you to work harder than the world. He is the one who's going to to allow you to give more sacrificially than the world. He is the one who will allow you to love more fervently than the world. He is the one who will make you more content than the world. He is the one who by his constant presence keeps our heart in tune with the song of God's deliverance and reminds us once and forever, we are God's and we are God's alone. That is how, as he says in verse 23, God will make his home with us. Amen? Let's pray. God, come now by your spirit and make your home in us. Fit us for your presence. Father, expand our tiny hearts so that they might know more of you and less of all else. Father, give us hearts and minds to conceive of you, to love you, to pursue you, to receive your word, to say of your word that it is good and it is true. Comfort us, we ask, by your Spirit's presence and keep us until that last day when we see your face. We ask it for Jesus' sake.